Amen. God is good. He is so good. That's awesome. I'm glad you're here today. And uh, I just want to welcome those of you that are new to Vertical Life Church. We believe everyone matters to God, so you matter. And we pray that your time with us would be an encouragement to you. And, uh, and we just welcome you to join us uh, on, our, on our website, on our podcast. We typically do a message series, teaching series, and we're in week three now of this new series that we've been doing called Open Heavens. And so we're going to, we're not really going to what we've taught before. We're going to do a quick rundown, uh, but uh, to catch up, you can join us on YouTube, on our YouTube channel, or on our website to catch up in the messages before so that you can follow along with where we're at today. Uh, but we have been going in this series kind of unpacking the mystery of worship, the mystery behind why we get together to worship on Sundays. It's, there, it's true that Jesus rose from the dead. He rose on a Sunday. And so we, for thousands of years, the church has gotten together to celebrate that fact. But more than just remembering what Christ has done, there is a spiritual mystery behind the worship gathering. And we've been looking at what is really the house of God and what are the characteristics and descriptions of the house of God? Because we use that term. When we talk about going to church, we're saying we're going to go worship in the house of God. And the house of God, biblically, is not a building necessarily. It is uh, something mysterious. It's something supernatural. It's a place where the heavens are open. And there's unhindered uh, un, uh, access between God and people. There, there is angelic activity. The miraculous happens all around in the house of God. There's the presence of God that dwells in the house of God. In the house of God, God is speaking. And in the house of God, people have life-changing encounters. You do not walk away the same than when you walked in, when you meet with God. All throughout the Old Testament, we can see the house of God in these characteristics. And last week in our study, we started looking at uh, the house of God and discovered that God is not just here. He's not just speaking, but he is moving among us. He, he, is, he is doing something with us. He's interacting with us. And this interaction that he's having is not meant to be a monologue, it's not meant to be a lecture where we come and listen to God and then we go home and figure out what to do with it. When we enter the house of God, this is to be a heavenly conversation. Jesus said, my house shall be known as a house of what? Prayer. Which means there's an expectation that when we come that we are participating in a conversation, that God is not just here and speaking, but we're participating in the conversation. And so we began to unpack how we can participate in the conversation. Last week, we talked about listening in worship. Over and again in the scriptures, it tells us to meditate, to think about, to dwell on, to let what is said and done and spoken impact us in the innermost part, to affect us emotionally, that we allow God to have access to our innermost part. And so when we listen to the word, the words in the songs, uh, what the Spirit is doing through the music, through the prayers that are offered, through the messages that are taught, God is communicating and we are to meditate on what he's saying and allow that to sink in deep down. Not only do we meditate on, but we need to practice attuning our senses to perceive the supernatural. 
In Hebrews, it says that we can attune our senses to perceive both good and evil. God has wired human beings in such a way that we can perceive the spiritual realm. We're not just physical beings stuck to exist in a spiritual or a physical world. We are spiritual beings that can perceive both good and evil. We talked about how, you know, when, when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you can feel it. There's a peace that you can't describe. There's, there's a, a sense of energy and warmth. We're talking about the presence of God. We also talked about how whenever we can sense uh, evil or the demonic, often you get cold or the hair on the back of your head stands up and, and, and how we can perceive things that just aren't right or these eerie feelings whenever we're in the presence of darkness. There's things about human beings, humankind that God has wired and gifts of the Spirit to discern both good and evil. And so as we practice discerning between good and evil, we practice discerning the presence of God, we meditate, we can listen, we can engage through listening in the worship service, in the worship gathering, in the house of the Lord. We also talked about declaration. As we engage in declaration, this is verbalizing our, our praise, verbalizing our prayers, letting what's in us come out. Jesus, in Luke chapter 6, said that when you speak, you speak because of the overflow of your heart. That what is inside of you will come out. That anything that happens externally is a result of what's happening internally. And so we want to let the praise that we have inside come out. And when we do that, we, we read in the Psalms that God enthrones himself or inhabits the praise of his people. Which means as we worship, we are literally calling down the presence of God. Calling down the, the presence of the Almighty because of our praise. How awesome is that? To know when we praise, God shows up. Can you feel him today? Can you sense him? He's here. He's all around. Jesus said when we gather in his name, he is there among us. So praise calls down the power of God and the presence of God. Not only does it do that, but it also acts as an act of spiritual warfare. That, that we can create a shift in our spirit. That we can be having the worst day ever. The worst week ever. But if we would begin to worship the Lord, we will sense a shift in our spirit. Because what the enemy is trying to do within us, God will turn around and use for our good. God will lift us. It says we can exchange this spirit of heaviness or darkness for a garment of praise. When we put on that garment of praise, the, the darkness, the attack can shift and we can be delivered from that darkness. And this week, we're going to get into the third way we engage in the heavenly conversation. And uh, really is our first point today. If you're taking notes, the, the uh, words will be on the screen, as well as uh, you can access through the YouVersion Bible app. If you navigate to the live events page, the notes will be there as well. But the third way we engage in the heavenly conversation when we gather into the house of God is with worship posture. So there's worship listening, there's worship declaration, and worship posture. Did you know that body language, reading body language, is an actual science? Did you know that? That now we're in the political scene, and the debates are beginning to happen. The government's getting ready to take over all of our television. Isn't that amazing? Right, 50, 50 minutes of commercials about candidates, 10 minutes a show, right? It's the most annoying time of the year, but it happens. We just got to deal with it. But when the debates happen, 
After the debates are over, what are all the commentators doing? They're breaking down the debate. And often you'll have somebody on the, the, the television talking about the body language and trying to key us into maybe what was going on inside of the, the candidate when they were speaking during the debate. This is an actual science. And there are really three categories that they look at whenever trying to determine what may be going on inside of the, the speaker when they're trying to break down body language. The first is facial expression. Because body language is a key part of communication. They look at facial expression as an indicator of maybe the emotions are going on inside. My, my wife tells me that I wear my emotions on my face. I'm not very good at hiding how I feel, which is really a bad thing for being a pastor. Because when someone walks up to you and they can't sing and they say, hey, we want to audition for the worship team, I'm like, Oh, great. Yes. Oh, yeah. Let's bless your heart. You know, you know, we'll get you an audition. Never. But, uh, you know, you know it, it's hard for me sometimes, but it's just how I'm wired. But facial expression is one of the ways we get a key on what is happening or how a person is interacting in a conversation. Two is body proxemics. This is the term used for how your body moves in space. You know, are you leaning forward? Are you leaning backwards? Are you gesturing with your hands? Are you rocking back and forth? This is a, another indicator of what might be happening or what might be uh, being communicated during the conversation. The other is body ornamentation, how you're dressed, the way you present yourself. But for the sake of uh, the illustration, I want to focus really on the first two, facial expressions and body proxemics. And I want to give you kind of a, a snapshot of, or a glimpse of what I used to do when I taught at Mott Community College for their soft skills program. I used to teach people how to be good employees. And the first thing that we did is we did what was called mock interviews. Anybody had a, a mock interview or involved in the mock interview process? Or maybe an actual interview where you had to interview for a job, right? Well, a lot of people don't know that there's actually rules to interviewing. That there's kind of a game. And it really, for me, it's a game. It's like a psychological game. Can I, can I psychologically figure out what my employer is looking for and provide them the answer or the presentation that will get me the job? It's kind of fun if you think about it. But when we taught interviewing, the first thing we really looked at was the resume, because that's your first impression. But other than the resume, there's really two other things that are important in the interview. One is your presentation, what you look like, and how you conduct yourself, your body language. But two was the answers that you gave. But even if you took the answers out of the equation, you can often kind of like diagnose what a person is trying to say or do by how they're responding. And uh, I was brought in to help with the onboarding process to our programs for the different medical classes and things because I, I had a fun way of psychologically diagnosing the person in the interview and getting them to reveal things about themselves they didn't want anybody to know. And, and so they brought me in often because we were doing career counseling. If they weren't cut out for it and we were going to pay their way, we wanted to make sure it was a good investment. So uh, we would do that. I would ask the, the questions that would get us to really find out if this person was quality or not. So they asked me to take that and bring it into the classroom to teach uh, how to interview. And some of the common mistakes people make in the interview process is not being aware of their body. 
because your body communicates something to the person on the other side. If you've ever conducted an interview, um, then you know what I'm talking about. But what I want to do is I want to demonstrate for you some of the bad behaviors people do in an interview, and I want you to tell me what I'm communicating to you. So you pretend you're the employer, you're asking me a question, and what would you think if I was like this in an interview? Just speak it out. What? I don't care. I'm not interested. Too cool, right? Maybe, maybe overconfident. Or maybe my mom dragged me in here, and I really don't want this job. Please send me home now. You know, it's one of those things. But people do that. Your attitude is reflected in your body. And so we begin to coach, like, no, you want this job. It's a good thing. Money is a good thing. And so we begin to do that. Other people, maybe they're overexcited, and then they're like this. What's this? What's that communicate? Nervousness, twirling your thumbs, right? You're nervous. Maybe you don't want me to find something out about you, like you have a record, and you're really hoping I don't ask that question. Have you ever been to jail? You know, there are these questions. But your body language communicates something to other people. If you have kids and you're talking to them about something they did and they are looking down or they're not paying attention, you kind of get frustrated because you know they're not really caring what you're saying right now. Or maybe you're, you're talking to your spouse or your significant other and they don't like what you're saying and so they roll their what? Their eyes. And what's that communicating? I am not having what you are serving right now. This is just not, I'm not into that. So our body proxemics, our body language often and does communicate what is going on inside. It clues us in or cues us in to what is being communicated by the other person in the conversation. All of these physical responses kind of give us an indication of the inner workings of the person's mind. And so if you think about that in a one-on-one conversation with a friend, a spouse, and you relate that to the heavenly conversation that we're having with God, what does your body language, when you are engaged in the heavenly conversation, communicate to the Father about your interest in what he is saying? When you gather for worship, what is your outside conveying about your inside? I mean, think about it. How is your posture in worship communicating your level of interest and engagement with God? Okay, God, you got till 1230, and then it's time for lunch. You know what I'm saying? Do you track with me? You resonate? Give my next drink of coffee because I'm barely here. You know, we, we, we communicate without even saying. And if God is here, God is communicating, God is trying to encounter us and bring us into his heart, how is our body language communicating to him? Is the movement of your body displaying your response to being on fire for God and desiring to meet with him, to be hanging on his every word, is there something going on on the outside reflecting what's happening on the inside, or is there nothing going on the outside reflecting there's nothing going on on the inside? You see, praise and worship 
can feel sacrificial. The Bible talks about that, a sacrifice of praise. Giving your bodies even as a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Praise and worship can feel like a sacrifice, especially when it becomes to be uncomfortable. When it requires me to step out of myself, out of what is making me comfortable, and do something maybe I'm not so comfortable with. But my God deserves nothing less than everything I am. The two greatest commandments, the very first, worship God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If I'm comfortable, there's not a lot of strength being exerted. Worship God with all that I am. Sacrifice and worship go hand in hand. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, we read about David. David's king of Israel. David is known as a man after God's own heart. He wrote multiple psalms. He was a worship leader before he was a king. He was, a, he was amazing musician, skillful. And when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by uh, an invading army, it was a sad day for Israel. But then God enabled Israel to get the Ark of the Covenant back, and David was able to bring it back into Jerusalem. And David had this vision of uh, one day building a permanent location for the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's presence would dwell. Before, it was placed in a tent called the Tabernacle, and it went from place to place. And, and so uh, there wasn't a permanent location. And David had this vision, we're going to build God a temple that would rival uh, anything that you could ever, or the man could ever create. It's going to be the most magnificent place. And unfortunately, God wouldn't let David build it. But he said, your son is going to build it. So what David did was he started preparation. He started buying all the stuff that his son would need in order to build the temple. And he goes to this guy who has this plot of land to buy this piece of property for uh, the temple location. And the man, Aruna, he says, no, king, I honor you and I want to honor the Lord. I'm just going to give you this land for free. I'll, I even give you the bowls and the sacrifices you need in order to uh, dedicate this land to the building of the temple. And let's look what David says in 2 Samuel 24, 24. It says, but the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on buying it for I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have what? What's that say? Cost me nothing. I will not offer a sacrifice that costs me nothing. So David paid him 50 pieces of silver for the threshing floor and the oxen. I will not offer a sacrifice-less offering. You see, David knew. He wrote about it in Psalm 51, a passage that talks about repentance and a heart cry for God to restore him. He knew that God doesn't really care about what the sacrifice is. He cares about the heart behind the sacrifice. He says, the sacrifice of the blood of goats and bulls, you don't require. What you desire is a broken and repentant heart. God is always about the heart. But the thing about the sacrifice is usually the greater the sacrifice, the greater the heart behind it. The, the, the greater display of adoration to God, the greater heart that's behind it. When we offer a sacrificeless act of praise or worship, we're not offering God the one thing he desires, which is our heart. David, when the ark was coming back into 
Jerusalem. He was out dancing with the people before the Lord. He, he stripped down into, into a priestly tunic, and he was parading around with just the common people. And he came back from the celebration, and his wife was indignant with him. She's like, how dare you, as the king of Israel, make a fool of yourself like this? And David responds to her, and he says, I'll make myself even more undignified than this. My worship is to the Lord. This for God. It's not for you. It's for God. I'll make myself even more undignified than this. You see, the problem that many of us have with offering God the praise and the worship, allowing what's inside to bubble outside, is because we've not yet sacrificed the one thing we're holding on to, which is our dignity. We're so afraid of what the next person might think or how we might look. In the view of other people, we forget about there's only one audience where worshiping towards. There's only one whose word matters when it comes to defining who we are in our account, and that's the God Almighty. You see, if God is moving in us, it will be demonstrated on us. And if God is moving through us, then as a church, it'll be demonstrated among us. If God is moving in us, it will be demonstrated on us And if God is moving through us, it'll be demonstrated among us. How beautiful to see people come forward and pray, and even more so, others come forward and pray for those that came forward. It's because God is moving among us, and it's being demonstrated through us. When we gather for worship, when we gather for the house of God, each of us need to be active in participating in the heavenly conversation. Each of us need to be engaged in listening and what God is speaking to our heart. Each of us need to be leaning in and pressing in for more of God. And when we engage personally, we're flowing with the Holy Spirit during our time of worship. We're going to have powerful encounters. And so I want to cover some of the postures of worship, some of the ways that God has said in his word, the ways he wants to be worshiped the way the Bible describes the people of God and how they worship God to key us into the language of, uh, of our bodies that God is looking for. You know, when we have a conversation with another person, we expect them to look us in the eye, right? We don't want someone to be on their phone texting the whole time we're talking to them, right? We, there's things that we look for to, as signs of respect and signs of engagement, and so does God. And he has laid it out for us in the Bible. There are biblical postures that are translated as worship and praise in the Bible. There's, there are many failures to translating the Bible into the English language because we miss so much of the meaning. And many of the words that are translated praise are actually translated simplistically to something actually quite more uh, uh, complicated in the Hebrew and the Greek languages. The first word that we translate as praise or as worship, and it will also be on the screen here, is halal. Somebody say halal. Halal. Halal is the Hebrew word. It's the root for, uh, it's the word praise in the English, but it's the root of the word hallelujah. The word hallelujah, it means, that. here's the definition. It means to be clear, to praise, to shine, to boast, to show, to rave about, to celebrate, or to clamorously be foolish. It's not just praise. It is exuberant 
display of worship and praise, adoration. It is to be exuberant in our demonstration of our love for the Lord. Psalm 150 verse 1 says, praise or halal the Lord. Praise, halal God in his where? In his sanctuary, in his house. Halal, rave about, act foolish in the sanctuary of God. Praise, halal him in his mighty heaven. Psalm 149 verse 3 says, Let them praise, halal his name in dancing accompanied by the tambourine and harp. God wants his people to celebrate when they gather together. He's worthy of it, to celebrate. It's not only appropriate to shout hallelujah, it's welcomed and encouraged. Let's practice. I say hello, you say hallelujah. Hello? Halle. I say hallelujah, you say hallelujah. Halle. Halle. Amen. He's worthy of it. We praise the name of the Lord. We shout. We participate. Number two is the word yada. Somebody say yada. In 1 Chronicles 16, 34, it says, Oh, give thanks, this is yada, unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. The word yada means to hold out the hand, to extend the arm. Give thanks, extend the arm, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Psalm 63, verse 4 says, I will praise you as long as I live, lifting my hands, yada, to you in prayer. It's to raise the hands. Some of us, we grew up in a tradition where this was the only expectation we could have. If we did anything more than this, we were, man, we were, we were breaking the rules. But God doesn't want this. This is chains. This is shackles. He wants this. This is freedom. He wants expression. He wants yada. Number three, there's another word that's similar to yada. It's toda. Toda. It comes from the same word, yada, but has a slightly different nuance. Toda literally means an extension of the hand, an adoration, a vowel, or acceptance. By way of application, it's used in the Psalms for thanking God and receiving or praising God for things yet received, things that are at hand. If you think of it like this, yada is praising God for who he is, for thanking him for what he's done. Toda is praising him in advance for what he's about to bestow upon you. It's receiving the anointing. It's receiving the blessing that God has yet to pour out in faith. My wife and I, uh, it's about a month or so ago, you know, a few weeks ago, I don't exactly remember uh, the exact weekend, but we were Saturday night, we were together, we were praying in our living room as we often do. And as we were praying, the Holy Spirit spoke to her and told her, tell your husband to open up his hands. And before she could say that, the Spirit spoke to me, and I felt like opening up my hands. So I opened up my hands, and she thought, well, that's confirmation. He told me to tell him. He's already doing it, right? So as I'm doing that, she then begins to pray what the Spirit is praying for an anointing of healing, to pour out healing. And uh, so we just had this incredible moment of prayer, not knowing what God was wanting to do with that. The next day was a Sunday. We gathered for worship, and um, just before at 9.45, we invite our team members to gather in the hallway just outside the auditorium for prayer, and uh, we're praying there. It's the first time that I stand next to Mr. Drew Severn uh, in, in the lineup. He's usually back there helping his wife 
get the nursery and everything ready, but he's standing next to me, and as we're praying, I have a vision of him having pain in his leg. And I've not you know, known, I've not known about this before, and Drew gave testimony of this uh, a while back, uh, so you can confirm it with him. But as, as we were done praying, I turned to him and I say, hey, I just feel like you have pain. It was your left leg, right? You're in your left leg. You got pain in your left leg. Um, and he's like, no, I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm all right. And I was like, no, like God's telling me you've got, is it like your knee, is your leg? And, and his wife spoke up. It's like, well, he has a football injury he's been dealing with. And we finally got him to confess that he's been struggling with this leg pain for a long time. And it was really killing him that day. He just didn't want to say anything. And so I was like, well, God put this on my heart. Let's pray. And I knelt down. And that was probably the most awkward thing for him is me kneeling and putting my hand on his leg. But uh, I prayed in the name of Jesus, and when we were done, pain was gone, absolutely gone. And I think it freaked him out, but he's still coming to church, so we're praising God for that. So, but it's an amazing thing. Why? Because toda. We receive the anointing. We receive what God wants to do. We praise him for who he is, but we receive what God wants to do for us. These postures are not just for the Old Testament. They're not just for times long ago or for outgoing people who are just expressive naturally. These are for all of us to use to engage in what God is doing in the moment as we're gathered together. Some of us haven't received what we've been asking for because we've not received what we've been asking for. Number four. The word shabach. Somebody say shabach. It means to address, to a shout in a loud tone, to command, to triumph. Psalm 47 verse 1 says, come everyone, clap your hands. It's okay, white people. We can clap our hands. Clap our hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. He is worthy. Shabach in this place. Erupt with praise. Interact. Praise the Lord. See, for those of you that don't like to be loud in a worship gathering, we are called to shout. We're not called to be silent. Silence is killing worship in the church. There's times for contemplation. There's times for meditation. But silence is killing the conversation. Imagine if you spoke to someone who didn't respond or reply that didn't offer praise. The word amen in the Bible means I agree. We're to shout in agreement. If this is good, somebody say amen. amen. Right? This is agreement. We're responding to what God is saying. It's, it's to respond, to shout. In Psalm 98, verse 4, there is another Hebrew word, number 5. There's the word ruach. Somebody say ruach. This word is also translated as loud or shout, but it means to split the ears with sound. Have you ever been in a concert where the noise was so loud you thought your ears were bleeding? Think about it. It's loud. In Exodus 18, God descends on the mountain of Sinai before the nation of Israel. He descends in a mighty tempest. He descends in thunder and lightning. He descends in a mighty fire. He descends in an earthquake. He descends with loud, what sounds like blasts of a trumpet. You think, praise the Lord, all you people, is going to be enough to overcome just the sheer nature of who God is in his presence. Right? Loud proclamation reflects who God is. Ruach 
is loud. We need to get loud. God likes it loud. He deserves it to be loud when we praise, for he is worthy. And so these are ways that we interact, we respond, we engage, we, we participate in the heavenly language. Then there are other things that, that happen in the worship experience that we can engage with if we're aware of what's happening in the moment. Number six is a phrase. It's chadesh tahila. Try to say that ten times fast. Chadesh tahila. It simply means sing a new song. Over and over throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, we have this admonition to sing a new song. Does that mean the old songs are, are bad? No, they're great songs. But there's an admonition to continually sing a new song, to let what is new, to let something new bubble up. The word new song is out of exuberant praise. There comes a time of spontaneous worship. It's kind of like being... Uh, a living Disney song. You're just walking along thinking about the Lord and you just break out in song. The Lord is good. He is worthy of praise. Oh, praise his name for he's the ancient of days. You just sing what's in your heart. He set free the blind. He raised the dead. And if you praise him, he's gonna raise you also. You just praise let what's in you come out. Sing a new song of spontaneous worship. Psalm 40, verse 3 said, He's given me a new song to sing. Do your, does your connection with God, is it such that you have a new song to sing? Is He alive in you? Is He moving in you? It's a new song, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what is done and be amazed, and they will put their trust in the Lord. A, a hymn of praise is the word tehillah. It also means an act of public praise. The new songs that God births within us are not meant to be silent. They're not meant to be isolated or private. They're meant to be publicly declared. He wants you to declare his works to the world. They must be declared. This word harash means fresh. There are times when you're in the worship gathering that you could be so overwhelmed in the presence of God that you just begin to sing what's on your heart. And there are times when we're leading worship and there's not a particular uh, verse to sing and we're, the music's just playing that my wife and I both will, will just begin to sing what's been sung, a variation of what is there or something completely different that God just put on our heart. These are spontaneous songs. This is how the Holy Spirit works in our worship. He is giving us new songs to sing. And spontaneous worship songs often are God communicating through the worshiper or the worship leader something that somebody in here needs to hear to bring breakthrough in their lives. And so we're encouraged to sing a new song, which means when we're singing songs together, if you don't know the song, sing a new song. If there's not words to sing and there's um, a, a time of music, connect to the Spirit and allow the Spirit to bring a new song in you. Participate. Don't stay silent. Stay engaged. Lean in. Sing a new song. Whenever uh, there's silence in the singing, that's your cue to engage. And if you think about why do you think over and over again that there are these admonitions to sing new songs and not old songs? It's because God is the God of the new. God is always doing something new. 
And he should be doing something new in you. You should be growing and not becoming old and stale. And he doesn't want us to just simply remember the past, but he wants us to press into the future through proclaiming his promises. He wants our hearts connected to what he's doing in the now so that we continue to believe him for the future. He doesn't want old and stale worship, but fresh and relevant worship that emanates from the heart of his people. And he knows that if we're engaged in what's new, he won't seem to get old. If we're engaged in what's new, if we're allowing new songs to pour out of our heart, he won't seem to get old. It won't be old to gather in his house. It won't be unexciting. And our hearts won't wander away and become distant. Some prophetic songs or some spontaneous songs are not just songs, but they're also prophetic words. Number seven is the word Massah. Somebody say Massah. Massah. In 1 Chronicles 15, 22, as David is hiring all the musicians and worship leaders for the upcoming temple, in 1 Chronicles 15, 22, it says, And Kenaniah, chief of the Levites, was for song. He instructed about the song because he was skillful. This word song is the word Massah, and it means the lifting of a burden or a prophetic utterance. Kenaniah was chosen by David to lead the worship because he was skillful in the area of prophetic worship, singing prophetic songs. And you can trace all throughout uh, the New Testament the gift of prophecy and the way the Spirit speaks prophetically through speaking through someone over someone to build up, encourage, and edify. And so often these spontaneous songs are not just random songs from your mind or, or cute tunes that you make up in the shower. They're actual words from the Holy Spirit meant to encourage and build up and edify someone. Maybe you, maybe somebody else. And you can go online to uh, YouTube and you can type in spontaneous worship and you can see all sorts of uh, different groups and out there that sing worship and break out into prophetic and spontaneous worship, and often it's incredibly powerful. So if you're engaged in, if you're listening, you're meditating, you're connecting to the Holy Spirit when you gather together, when you're aware of his presence and you lean in to what he's doing, the Spirit can use you as an order oracle to lift up the burden of someone else, to sing prophetically. But see, prophetic songs will not come without an engaged heart. It won't just happen randomly. It happens through participation. Psalm 95, verse 6, is another word that we use. It says, come, let us worship and bow down. This is the Hebrew word kara. Let us kneel, barak, before the Lord our maker. Two words that are similar for bowing low or kneeling. Kara means to bow down or crouch low. Barak means to kneel down. In other words, to bless God as an act of adoration or to salute. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel. Part of adoring the Lord is bowing before him. The New Testament, it says, if we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will lift us up. So we come, and when our heart is grieved, or when we're just so burdened to encounter the presence of God, coming and bowing before the Lord is more than appropriate. It's showing God we honor him and understand that he alone is worthy of praise. Bowing low before God represents our surrender to him. Our surrender to him in the moment. That God, nothing else matters in this moment but you. 
Nothing else matters in my life. If my life is going to have a breakthrough, it's because that you do a work in it. So I'm going to come and lay myself down, and I'm going to worship here until something shifts and changes, even if it's in my own heart. Bowing down before the Lord is a way we can engage and involve ourselves in this heavenly conversation. And in our times of worship, we want our, our worship services to be less religious and regimented and more free. And so if we're leading a song and we're, and we're praising and worship and you feel a need to come before the Lord, come and bow down. Don't wait for a signal. Don't wait for someone to say, okay, now it's bowing down time. Right? Come down before the Lord. This past week I was praying about just a burden on my heart. And uh, God gave me a vision of this very auditorium. And the Lord was sitting in this front row of seats right down here. And I'm thinking, God is just showing me he's here. He's with us. And if you want an encounter with him, you got to engage with him. you got to lean in. you got to participate. And that might mean coming down and bowing before the Lord, letting go of pretense and all dignity, and just becoming desperate for the presence of God. When we gather, we're also encouraged to rejoice. Psalm 32, verse 11 says, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. The word rejoice is the Hebrew word ge'ul. Somebody say ge'ul. Ge'ul. You're all going to be professional Hebrew speakers. Not really. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing these right, but I'm doing it with confidence, so it'll sound right to you. So, but this word ge'ul is the word translated rejoice. Right? We know rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We don't have a problem with rejoicing, but maybe when we look up the original definition, you might have a little different take on it. The word ge'ul or rejoice means to spin around under any violent emotion. To spin around. Right? This is dancing to the, the, the nth degree. This is Giving God, right? Worship with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is giving God the praise that he's due. We are to rejoice when we gather together. Do our services, do, do worship gatherings look like rejoicing? Do they where they should? They should look like the people of God caring about nothing but the praise of our Heavenly Father. Gu'ul means to literally twirl around in the presence of God. Many of us, if we walked into a place and someone was twirling around, we'd be like, that dude got touched by the crazy stick, you know. But you know what? If you're touched by God, you will be crazy for God. Amen. If you're touched by the Lord, if your heart's on fire, if your heart's on fire for God, it's not going to matter the opinions of others. It's going to matter that you have a connection with your Father. You found purpose and know who you are as a child of God. To gu'ul, it requires getting your whole self involved. It's like that phrase, dance like nobody's watching. Some of you do that. Don't lie. You're in your house. Your jam comes on and you're <laughs> dancing like nobody's watching. You know, I don't know. I can't floss or I would do that. I have to get one of my kids up here to do that. But God wants you to dance in his presence like nobody's watching. He wants you to go. He wants you to celebrate. He wants you to find joy. Rejoice means to find joy in his presence. God, Jesus said that unless you humble yourself like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And some of us have put so many adult-like stipulations on our expressions of worship and on our relationship with God that we can't enter his presence like a child. And God says, find 
joy. Rejoice. There's joy in my presence. Let your hair down and let your self cut up. And of course, there are, there are times for stillness in the worship gathering. I'm not saying that from start to finish, it just should be loud and crazy, but that should be a part of it. There are times for contemplation. There are times for meditation. But even in the most intimate moments with the Lord, even in those moments where the Spirit is moving and you feel the weight of God on you and you can't help but just feel like bowing to the ground and just soaking in the presence of God, you can raise your hands. You can say Amen. You can shout hallelujah. You can clap your hands. You can dance and move as well as be still and be quiet before the Lord. But I think overall, the church has mastered stillness to the point that it's quibbled any ability to let our hair down in that childlike faith. We say, well, it says be still and know that I am God, so I'm just going to be like this. But the problem is, is there's nothing on your face. There's nothing in your body reflecting that you're having a connection with God. You look more like a corpse than you do a Christian on fire for God. Is God doing something in your heart? Are you excited for the Lord? Did you wake up today knowing you're going to enter in the house of God? He was going to be here, that you were going to find breakthrough. He was going to answer your prayer. He was going to heal your body, that you were going to hear from God, that he was going to do a work in your life. We've let religious process replace spirit-driven posture in the house of the Lord. And I'm calling on the church to get back to their childlike faith. Remember what it was, what it felt like when you first encountered God. And let that spark turn into a wildfire and allow the Spirit of God to draw you deeper into His presence. We practice in here what should be demonstrated out there. And if we're not practicing in here, how are we ever going to hear and see out there? If we're not confident in our testimony here, how are we going to share it out there? If we're not confident in our praise here, how are we going to proclaim him out there? It doesn't work that way. The enemy has stifled us through religious process, has quibbled us. If worship calls down the presence of God, then praise ought to be on my lips every day. If worship draws me into the heart of the Father, then I ought to sing a new song every moment. That I'd be pressing in. When I feel down, I start to sing. When I feel defeated, I start to praise. Think about what stops people from letting their hair down, and just enjoying themselves in the, the house of God. Fear, embarrassment, maybe doubt, or pride. And you know what? All of those emotions and feelings are influences of the enemy. Everyone. Fear. We've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Embarrassment. Don't fear man who can only hurt your body. Fear only God who can destroy both your body and soul in hell. Doubt. Don't doubt because those who doubt are like a ship that's tossed to and fro in the water. And who would ever expect to receive anything from the Lord who has faith like that? James. And pride. Pride is one of the things God hates. Pride is the characteristic of the devil. Why would any of those things draw us closer to God? They won't. They'll push us away. All of those emotions and feelings are influences of the enemy. Think about this. Why do you think the enemy would want you to fear in the house of God? 
Why would the enemy want you to feel embarrassed in the house of God? Why would he want you to doubt in the house of God? And why would he want you filled with pride in the house of God? Because he knows if you get lit, his house is burning down. If you get on fire, if fear gets broken off, if the strongholds get broken away, you're going to be set on fire and you're going to start taking ground back from his kingdom. He's going to start losing in a major way. Lives are going to begin being changed, beginning with your own. Your family's going to be different. Your neighborhood's going to be different. Your community's going to be different because worship finally returned to the house of God. The devil wants to be worshiped. So what he tempted Christ with. We just went through a study on the 40-day the temptation. He wants to be worshiped. An agreement grants him authority. When we agree with the enemy, we give him what he desires. We give him worship. He wants to be worshiped. And when you give in to the enemy, you give in to what he desires. And then he's allowed to get in between you and God. When you don't engage your heart, when you don't connect with God, when you enter his house, Satan can rob you of the blessing God intended to bring into your life that day. When we think about it, we talk a lot about God's love, how amazing his love is. And the reason why God directs us to worship is so that he can draw us into his heart, deeper into his heart, deeper into his presence. Because that's where we find what we need. And just something that's on my heart, something that God has been dealing with me about is God might be waiting for some of you to raise your hands to receive before you get the anointing you've been praying for. God might be waiting for some of you to humble yourself and bow at the altar and worship before he lifts you up into your breakthrough. Some of you, God might be waiting for you to cut loose and dance, putting on the garment of joy before breaking off that spirit of heaviness you've been struggling with your entire life. That depression. For some of you, the insecurity you feel, he might be waiting to break it off until you release shouts of praise. For some of you, the shame and the guilt that you've been carrying has been kept as a prison locking your faith in a facade of comfort and ease and it's quibbled you from becoming the reservoir of his power and his presence that's enabled to change the atmosphere in any location you go into because you've given in to what the enemy has wanted for you. See, I believe when the people of God engage in the worship gathering, when we just say, God, it's you and me, and here I am. Miracles happen. Miracles flow. What miracle are you praying for today? What miracle? Maybe the way to unlock it today is in how you engage in worship. Hallelujah. It's in drawing close and responding. It's getting over the traditions that have created fear and doubt in you, and it's setting your heart free to express itself. And maybe for the first time, allowing God's heart to so overwhelm you that you walk away different. I asked this question earlier. How have you been engaged with God in the worship gathering? Just like an employer is looking to certain behaviors and certain characteristics and a quality potential employee before granting him the privilege of being hired in his establishment, 
I believe, too, God is looking for worshipers who worship him in a certain way. Jesus said they shall worship in spirit and in truth. Spirit is everything you are, inside and out. Truth is according to his word, according to his nature and his character. God is looking for worshipers who will worship with all their heart, all their mind, all their will, all their emotions, and all of their strength as their bodies are used as a living sacrifice. This is the way God wants to be worshipped. And it's not that he wants to be worshipped so we can stroke his ego. He knows that we worship him in that way, we will be changed. We will find what we need. We will receive the privileges and benefits of his presence. If we believe he's here when we gather, how much of him do we want to experience? How far do we want to climb on the stairway to heaven? And that's determined by how far we press in and engage in the worship gathering. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes in this moment. No one looking around for just a moment. When you compare God's word to your level of engagement, ask yourself this question, what has your posture in worship been communicating to the Lord when you gather in his house? What has your worship posture been communicating? Are you showing him you care? That you're interested? That you're engaged and that he matters? Or are you communicating something else? Ask yourself this question, what are you going to change today to press in deeper to his presence? And draw closer to the encounter's presence so that God can fill you up and send you out. So God can use us all to strengthen one another so we can all be built up and encouraged. Just this week, I had an opportunity to lead one of my coworkers to Christ. It was an amazing thing. Got a chance to ride in the car with him and, and talked with him, found out about his life, his story. He had some religious background, but he never really encountered the presence of God. And I went into that car ride just asking God, God, just be with us, use us, and open an opportunity. And as I was just in that moment, I felt God just all over, the Spirit all over. And, and as I was sharing with him, I said, hey, I feel the presence of God. I know you do too, don't you? And he's like, yeah, I've never felt anything like this before. And I was able to lead him in a prayer to receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior and it overwhelmed him so much that he had to pull the car over for a minute because he'd never had an encounter with God like that. And I believe that that's not just for people who are lost, but God wants to encounter people in such a powerful way that it overwhelms us, that it makes us stop and be still and know that he's God. I had another coworker this week who had a relationship with God, was saved as a young child, rebaptized when he was 19, but he could, I could tell he was just kind of distant from the Lord. And God gave a word of knowledge that he was dealing with shoulder pain. And I was able to pray for him, and his shoulder was totally healed. He was wigging out all day that he had full mobility in his shoulder. God healed him. And even at the end of the day, he was coming up, and he was like, man, I'd, that's just so crazy. And he was telling other people about it. He became an evangelist, a witness, because of what God did in his life. What seems like maybe small encounters become life-changing experiences. And we have that every week we gather. And it's there if you want it. 
but God won't force it on you. How has your posture been communicating to the Lord? Father, I pray for us here in this moment as the music begins to play, as we enter a time of worship. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw every heart. God, there are those that need to praise aloud, that need to sing. There are those that need to shout. There are those that need to come forward and bow. God, there are those that their hearts have been so distant for so long, they wouldn't know your presence if you bit them, God. And I just pray, Lord, that you would fall on them right now, that you would dramatically introduce them to the heart of their Heavenly Father, God, and that you would provide them a life-changing encounter. God, as we open this time of ministry, I pray those that have testimonies of your goodness, that they would not be afraid that they'd come forward and testify. God, I pray that those that need healing would come forward for healing. Lord, that now as we just enter this time, Holy Spirit, that you would work and move. Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that they've never had that time where they've accepted Jesus and they've begun a relationship with you, they've never encountered the heart of their Father in relationship, I pray, God, that they'd come forward and that you transform their lives and they discover what we know is the reason why we gather for worship every week. Let the heavens open in Jesus' name. Amen. With every head bowed, every eye closed, we're going to enter a time of worship and prayer. Uh, the words will be on the screen if you want to sing along. But for the next few moments, let's just respond to what God is doing. You respond to what he speaks to you. In Jesus' name.